Solitaire Rose Novelcast, Do the Job, Part 6. Novelcast is a series where I, Corey Strode, take the novels that I've written and turn them into audiobooks as I'm editing them for publication. This is part six, and um, this one has been a little harder than most. Won't get into why, it just has. What has gone before? Lance, former professional wrestler and current private eye, has been asked to investigate the apparent overdose of friend and wrestler Michael Bashmet, known in the wrestling business as Mikey Blast. As he is investigating and interviewing the people who knew him, in the previous chapter, he stops someone from stealing his files after breaking into his office. We pick up with Lance cleaning up the mess in his office and falling asleep in his office chair. I would stack things up in piles to start with file folders, papers that weren't ripped up, and papers that were torn. I worked on it for a while, but after a bit I decided I needed a break. I went to the small refrigerator that Katie kept under her desk up front, grabbed a pre-made sandwich and a couple of sodas, and went back to my office. I honestly don't remember closing my eyes, but I must have because it was woken by the sound of a phone at my desk ringing. Without being fully awake, I grabbed it and said, Hello? Thank God, came Katie's voice on the other end. I was still mostly asleep, so I said, What's wrong? What's wrong, she shouted. You're out all night and I get a call from the police this morning telling me that the guy they arrested in our office was someone who said he would kill you if he got half a chance and you want to know what's wrong? Slow down, I said as the night came back to me. I explained to her that I must have fallen asleep while trying to clean up my office. thought it was a perfectly acceptable explanation for why I was gone all night, but I was quickly informed of the errors of my thinking. I was told that I should have called or come home and dealt with it today, or at least let her know that a former target broke in and I had to lay the smack down on him. I didn't know it was a former client, I said. He wasn't, she corrected. His wife was the client, and you caught him in a hotel room with a hooker and about $500 worth of blow. When the cops arrested him, he said he'd kill you if he got out of jail. Obviously, he hasn't made good on his promise yet, and I felt a bit of a shiver as I thought about it. I remembered him, Mark Ivey. His wife was a mousy woman who wondered why he worked all the time, and yet they still didn't have any money. Katie filled me in on her end. He'd confess who he was when he got to the police office, had a lawyer show up about an hour after he got there. The lawyer was obviously connected, since Ivy was out on bail, but ordered to stay away from me. I would want to check on his parole, since there was probably some sort of clause in it that if he broke the law again, he'd be invited back to St. Cloud's prison to complete the rest of his jail time, but I hadn't followed the case. Who knows, maybe he saved the life of the governor's daughter or something. Katie had gotten the name of the bail bondsman who'd worked it out. Clint Endicott, and I winced. Endicott was best known as the Bondsman of the Scumbags, and dealt almost exclusively with well-connected lowlives. I knew him, not well, 
but I'd had to go to his high-rise office more than once to get information for one case or another, and he was good for truthful information about half the time. Come home, Katie said. I'm sure sleeping on the desk didn't help your neck any, and it's Sunday. The office can wait until Monday, even if you don't want anyone else to fix your files. It's not that I don't an want anyone to fix them. It's they won't be able to put them in the right order. The order you use so that no one else can find anything or file it properly, she said. Exactly, I said, realizing I'd made her point for her. I looked at the digital clock on the radio that I used and saw that Brad's show over at the Civic Center had been going on for around an hour. I have to get going, love. I have to talk to Brad when he's in town. And his traveling circus packs up and leaves tonight when they're done with their TV taping, since they have another show in Wisconsin tomorrow. He won't know anything, she said. I miss you and want you home. I'll be there as soon as I can, I said. I just need to know if Mikey said anything to him that might give me a clue as to why he killed himself. Okay, she said, but if you aren't home by nightfall, I'm sending out the Mounties to find you and bring you home. Wild horses, Red, wild horses, I said. I hung up and wrote down the information she'd given me in the file I had on Mikey's case. I told Katie that he'd killed himself, but I didn't believe it in any way at this point. Too many holes in the stories. Too many things that make it seem fishy. By themselves, none of the things I'd found out made it look like anything more than an accidental overdose. But when you add them all up, and the thinking about how hard he fought to keep his sobriety, it was just not the right answer. I wrote in the file that I was keeping parts of it from Katie. I hated doing that, but all I really had were hunches and gut feelings. If I turned out to be wrong, I didn't want her thinking that I was wasting time on a wild goose chase. I also didn't want her talking me out of the case like she'd been trying to do. She was good at talking me out of cases, and there were a few she had told me to drop in the past. I listened to her, partly because she had a good instinct for such things, and partly because I wanted my home life to be smooth. Hell, I loved the girl. For the most part, if she asked me for something, I gave it to her. If she asked me to do something, I did it. Not because I was whipped, but just because I'd learned over the years that she had a good reason for such things. I trusted her. However, keeping my suspicions about the case to myself made me wonder if I really did trust her. Was I keeping it away from her for the very reason she didn't want me involved in the case? Did I really still have the sickness and wanted to get back in the ring? I dismissed the thought, dropped the file back in the hidden safe, and debated taking my gun with me. It would be the third time I've carried it, and even though I had a license for doing so whenever I wished, I didn't like the damn thing. I'd only fired it on a shooting range. I knew why I had to have the gun, and that was the reason I didn't want to carry it. It was to be used in case I was in a situation where it was kill or be killed. The implication was that I would have to kill someone. It's all a gun is for, anyway, to take the life of another human being, and I didn't see why that should have to be a part of my job. Sure, I'd had to knock a few guys around and defend myself when someone got upset that I'd found out their secrets, but to kill someone? That wasn't for me. Before you start in on how all I knew was how to fake fight, I'll remind you that in order to know how to fake it, you have to know how to really kick some ass. On top of that, we were expected to be good fighters in Dan's Federation. He didn't want some drunk at a bar to be able he'd say he'd beat up one of Dan's wrestlers. We tended to spend a lot of time in dive bars while on the road, and it wasn't a rare occurrence for someone to have a few too many and tell his buddies that that guy on TV wasn't as tough as he thought he was. Eddie and Mikey taught you how to fight in the ring, but they also taught you how to win a real fight. It came in handy, not just in bars, but a few times in the ring when some younger guy wanted to work stiff 
and hit you for real a few times. Then again, if you've pissed Dan off and found yourself in the ring with Ming the Merciless or Colonel Carter, you'd better be able to dish it out, or you'll be in for a fight you might not walk away from too easily. I looked at the gun safe and knew that Mark had broken into it, but had no idea how. He was a professional at breaking and entering, I guess, from the tools he had with him as well as the fact he'd gotten into our storefront, but I didn't remember him having that skill from when I caught him. He was just a drug-using serial cheater like the girls who worked along Lake Street. Then again, when I first caught him, I didn't know half the shit I knew now about surveillance, so maybe we'd both been studying. I opened the safe and pulled out the gun, a Beretta 92S. It was one that was amazingly common and used by a lot of foreign police departments. As a bigger guy, I didn't worry that normally it was a bit too big for some people to carry as a concealed weapon. In the safe it was unloaded, and Mark hadn't slid the magazine in. I did so reluctantly. I had a holster for it, got it out of the safe as well, and put it on over my shirt. It had a slide-mounted combined safety and a decocking lever, which made me feel a little better. I set the safety, making sure I'd done it correctly. I slid the gun into the holster. While it was supposed to be a light gun, it felt amazingly heavy to me. I made sure it wouldn't slip out of the holster. I put my blazer on over the shirt. While the gun was impossible to see, I felt like I stood differently with it on. I locked everything in my office up, then left out the front door, making sure to set the alarm system and lock the door as I left. I wanted to hear the loud beep that the alarm would make once it was armed, and figured that one of the other employees had forgotten to set the alarm Friday when they left. When I got in the car, I realized that Katie and I had stayed late, so I couldn't blame it on them. Usually Katie took care of the alarm, so she must have forgotten it, since I don't remember setting it when we left. By the time we got on the road, I realized I hadn't eaten anything but half a ham sandwich since before Dan's show, and another sandwich from the mini-fridge. At Dan's show, there hadn't been anything to eat, because there was no way I was going to buy one of his hot dogs. I wondered how he was able to get away with selling them when he had no food license, but then remembered Dan's philosophy on things like that. Plead stupid, and use the perception of professional wrestling in your favor. I went through the closest drive through I could find and promised myself I would do an extra hour on the treadmill when I got home and was off. An hour later, I was parked and at the back of the door of the Civic Center. There were a few workers standing around the back entrance, none of them in their gear, but with their hair and huge builds, it would be hard for them to disguise who they were. As I walked up, one of the guys who was up and coming when I left the business shouted, Lightning Kid! How the hell are you, buddy? He'd been the Tongo assassin when I worked with him. He was about as big as I was. They billed him as being from darkest Africa, but really he was from Samoa, and didn't mind the gimmick, because it was pretty rare for a black man to work as a heel in the 70s and 80s. Even Dan was worried about looking like a racist in ultra-liberal Minnesota, but Tonga was so good at generating heat with the fans, it would have been a waste for him to be a babyface. He had a shaved head and wearing a pair of jeans, and a black GWF windbreaker that he probably got from Dan's merchandise table. Under it, he had a simple white shirt, no tie. He was a huge man, and his face had the look of someone who'd been in a lot of fights with one addition. He had the deep scarring on his forehead that most of us in the business had. He'd been known in the business as someone who had violent-looking matches, so he had to bleed at almost every house show. He gave me the weak handshake, which I returned. Why did you drop by? Want to see what the big leagues are like? Nope, I said. I'm going to talk with Brad for a bit. He ain't hiring when the other guys hanging out at the entrance said. Especially not old guys. 
The guy looked like some California bodybuilder with bleached hair, a goatee, and those ugly Zubas pants. He was a couple inches taller than me, and really looked like he could have been a movie star of some kind. His forehead was clean, so if he'd ever had to bleed in a match, it was probably pretty rare. I'd have to have never watched TV to not know it was Superman Samson, who was their current champion, and the guy they had carrying the Federation as their main babyface. That was the difference between Dan and the older territory promoters and Brad. They usually had a heel as champion and felt that the money was in the chase, and had babyfaces trying to finally bring justice to the ring by beating the heel. Brad had it the other way around, and like having a face as a champion, and then would bring in their built-up heels to beat up the champion and threaten to end their championship reign. I nodded at the big surfer, but before I could say anything, Tonga said, Shut the hell up, green meat. You aren't fit to lace his boots. This is a lightning kid. And if he wouldn't have taken a bad bump, you'd still be selling skateboards and playing in shitty sticks cover bands. Samson started to say something, and Tonga said, Yeah, you just keep flipping your lips, and I'll stretch you tonight like you're my bitch. Normally, that sort of talk in the locker room would mean that whoever was being dressed down would have to take a swing at the guy talking smack, but Samson just shook his head and went inside. I must have looked confused because Tonga said, He don't know shit, because he looks good and have a couple of movie roles. Brad strapped a rocket to him. In your day, we'd just beat the shit out of him until he went home, but Brad said we have to make him look good. He is on TV all the time, I said. True that, Tonga said, but as long as he's a draw, we'll keep the money train rolling. But when he isn't able to put butts in seats, he is in for a very rude awakening. I nodded and said, anyway, I'm here to talk to Brad about Mikey. Tonga shook his head and said, goddamn shame what happened to him. I was looking forward to having him on the road. He'd be able to whip these new kids into shape, make my job getting them over easier. I'd say half of them haven't even been in the business two years. Brad snatched up most of the better guys in the territories, but he also picked up their muscle-bound kids because they look good on TV. They can't work a wrist lock at gunpoint. Did you talk to him before? Nope, he said. I thought we'd catch up when he joined us. Brad was having the taping here because he knew Mikey could get us some good carpenters from the area. Carpenters was what we called the guys whose job it was to lose, but to make the star look good. The promoters were smart enough to know that they didn't give away their big matches on TV for free. So they'd fill their TV shows with stars working with the unknowns, and then set up angles that would pay off at the live shows. The heel might jump the face on TV and beat him down, they wouldn't face off in the ring until it was on a house show where people would have to pay their admission to see the match. How long are you guys going, I asked. About six or seven hours, all told, he said. We're going to put together a month's worth of TV, so we've got to have some big matches to keep the crowd interested. They get that many squash matches in a row, they'll head for the exits. And that would make the TV look like shit, I said. Who are you working? I have to put over the Sunshine Superman, he said derisively. But I get to lay in some stiff shots. His whole thing that he gets beat down for most of the match, then does a big comeback at the end. It's the same match every time, but for some reason, people don't mind seeing it. Yeah, it's like a rock band having to do their big single. They're sick of it, but it doesn't matter, because the crowd gets pissed off they don't get to hear Tom Sawyer. He shook his head and said, Brad's not going to have time to talk to you until they have an intermission. He's in the booth, making sure they get everything right for TV. He's obsessive like that. The show looks damn good, I said. I'd watch it a few times with the sound off when I was working out, and it looked as good as professional basketball or a football game. 
Dan show looked like exactly what it was. A ring set up in a TV studio, a couple of rolls of folding chairs set up around it, two cameras that never moved. Bradshaw had a lot of camera angles, was filmed in big arenas, had handheld cameras that caught up close to the ring. I thought at first it was a bad idea since a close camera would show more than a wrestler one had shown. I saw a guy giving another guy a kick, saw him slap his other leg to make it sound like he'd clocked the guy upside the head. To me, the close camera angle made it look like it was frighteningly blatant, but no one seemed to notice. The workers were also working a bit more snug, making the hits and chops closer so it looked real. While there were times a guy would give me a clothesline, I'd drop half a second before he would have hit me with the move. He's picking up the business fast. A year ago when he brought me in, he was still trying to figure out the difference between TV and wrestling. But he's a smart guy. He hired a few of the best bookers and road agents. And things aren't much different than they were with any other territory, other than we all get a hell of a lot more money. Damn shame you couldn't have made this kind of money when you worked for Dan. I did okay, I said. Yeah, with Dan you made as much as an office stiff, but here you get paid like a TV star. I don't even have to make my own merchandise. Brad makes it all, then gives you a cut of the profits. You ever hear anyone say anything about some of the guys like Dan trying to mess with things? I heard a rumor that Crusher Hogan got paid a half million to mess with our live network show. They say a bunch of the southern guys raised the money and paid him to jump the rail and beat down Superman, but nothing ever came of it. I heard something like that, I said. Any problem with drugs? Tonga looked like I'd just told a dirty joke in church, and he said in a whisper, Jesus, Lightning, I can't talk about that shit. If I tell you anything and one of the workers hears, I'm in deep shit. How about we talk later? Somewhere away from the business. He looked around and finally said, This have to do with Mikey? Yeah, he's the only reason I'm here. Katie told me I'm a dead man if I ever think of getting back in the ring. She's a woman I'd listen to. Even if she couldn't kick my ass, he said. How a mug like you landed her, I'll never know. According to her, she landed me, I said. We set up a time to meet later that night, and I went into the building. The backstage area was huge, much bigger than I remembered. There were a lot of people running around. There were workers, mostly in gear, and technicians who had headsets on. There were prop people, people putting on makeup and face paint on some of the workers, and it seemed more like backstage at a Broadway show than a wrestling event. When I worked here, it was just the workers and some of the ring crew. I was asked by a security guy for my name when I told him he grabbed a walkie-talkie and asked if I was authorized to be backstage. The reply came back quickly, and he told me to find an out-of-the-way place because they were getting ready for a lot of activity, and they needed the space cleared. I looked for a place to sit that would be out of the way when I saw something out of the corner of my eye. I turned as I saw someone ducking behind what looked like a prop desk. I had no idea why they had a big blue desk around, but the fact that someone was trying to hide behind it concerned me, especially with Mark out on bail. I slowly started moving toward the prop and saw that security wasn't paying any attention to it, so they must not have seen anything. I reached under my blazer and put my hand on my gun. I released the safety and had my hand ready to pull the gun out of its holster. I kept moving toward the prop desk slowly and wasn't able to hear much of anything other than the crowd the over-amplified noises from the ring, and the people getting ready backstage. I slowly slipped the gun out of its holster and, as I made it to the desk. I didn't see anything and crept to the other side. It was almost against the wall, and I could see it was made out of simple plyboard, painted to look as if it was far more solid than it actually was. I was holding the gun under my blazer and my breath. In one quick motion, I moved to the back of the desk and pulled out the gun, shouting, Get out! Right now! 
That got security to notice me, and as they started running toward me, I saw under the desk was plenty. She put her hands up and yelled, Don't shoot! It's just me! I quickly held the gun up by the grip, my finger not on the trigger, and said, It's okay. I have a license for it. One of the security guys, who'd been a hell of a lot braver than I would have been, since he only had a big metal flashlight, said, Put it down, as the others came over. I quickly put the safety back on and placed the gun on the desk. Quickly, but not in a way that looked like I was going to do anything with it. I said, I'm going to pull out my license, if that's okay. No, the security guy said, it's not. Turn around, put your hands on the wall. Then tell me which pocket it's in. I did what he asked and said, it's in my front blazer pocket. He reached in and pulled out the small leather holder I kept it in. It looked like a black wallet. He looked at it a bit and said in his walkie-talkie, all clear, I repeat, all clear. Good, I heard in the walkie-talkie and Brad's booming, unmistakable voice. Do I need to do anything? No, false alarm, the security guy said. Then he told me to turn around and he said, We've gotten some threats over the last few months. You should have told us you were packing heat. Sorry, I said, slowly picking up the gun and putting it back in its holster. I've gotten a threat myself, so I'm a bit jumpy. He walked away and Plenty got up from under the desk. She was wearing a much flashier set of tights than the night before, and it looked as if her chest had magically grown a cup size or two since I'd seen her. What the hell are you doing under there, I asked. You're here for Dan, and I thought he wanted you to... I don't work for Dan plenty. I'm working on Mikey's death, I said. She looked sheepish and then pulled out something from under the desk. I recognized it immediately as the championship belt she'd had the night before. She looked like a kid who'd been caught sneaking a bowl of ice cream when she said, This is why I thought Dan had sent you. I'm going to drop this in a garbage can tonight when I make my debut. Jesus, I said, shocked. I know. That's why I hid from you. I was sure he told you to come stop me. I am out of the business. For good. What you do for your own career is up to you. But if you think the way they hated Mikey was bad, I said. She cut me off. No, this is different. Yeah, it's worse, I said. No, it's not, she said quietly. You don't know how mad Eddie was. He said that Mikey had ruined their business. Dan wasn't even as mad as he was. He covered it up when you were there, but as soon as you left, he ended the training session, sent us all home. Said he couldn't concentrate enough to teach anyone anything, and he ranted to me about Mikey for a while before I was able to leave. Think he was mad enough at Mikey to do something? No, she said. He wasn't like that. He just isn't letting it go. Think he was more mad that Mikey didn't get him a job for Brad because he kept talking about how this was a great opportunity for him. I was about to ask her something else when there was a tap on my shoulder. I turned around and saw it was the brave security guard. He said, Brad would like to talk to you up in the box. The Civic Center had a bunch of skyboxes. Most of the time they were for rich assholes who wanted to throw a party while an event was going on. I'd never been in one, but Dan had certainly made a lot of money off selling them to people who wanted to have a big party while we worked our asses off in the ring. I told Plenty I'd talk to her when I got back. She nodded, still looking as if she had to be brought to the principal's office. We walked through the back way to the skyboxes that was used by politicians and celebrities when they didn't want to have to put up with other people who'd come there for the event. It wasn't very well lit, and the stairs were made of wire mesh, which always made me worried. But other than my Doc Martin boots making too much noise as we went up them, there wasn't any problem. They led me to the door when the skyboxes and knocked. And there you are, part six of Do the Job. Part seven is coming in two weeks.
Yes, believe it or not, two weeks. There are a lot of shows here on the Solitaire Rose Network. If you head on over to crazycomics.solitairerose.com, that's the weekly Crazy Comics and Stories, kind of the mothership. Over 300 episodes of myself and Joe Ryder talking comics and explaining why episodes of this podcast are late every Monday. Uh, This Monday, just two days, we will be discussing the life of Jack Kirby in a special episode. Um, That's also the feed for Solitaire Rose Radio, which is my solo podcast. I do interviews. I talk uh, comics history. I do more experimental things, and I've put together an audio biography of the artist Jack Kirby. You can find that over there as well. There's another podcast I do with my friend uh, Dan Moore and his puppet Wolfie called Bad Advice over at badadvice.solitairerose.com where people ask us for advice and we give bad advice, hence the name of the show. And the other podcast on the Solitaire Rose Network is Scrabbling Across the West, and I will let Dave and Stephanie Cofell explain what it is. Scrabbling Across the West, a fortnightly retelling of Dave and Stephanie Cofell. fortnightly? That means every two weeks. I know what it means. What if we wanted to do it more or less often than every two weeks? (laughs) Well, that wouldn't be holding down the fort, would it? Oh, you're funny. Okay, how about frequently. All right, I'm good with that. Okay. Scrabbling Across the West, a frequent retelling of Dave and Stephanie Kofel's adventures in traveling, making music, and playing Scrabble across the Western Hemisphere. It's all about the people, places, and the game. Scrabbling Across the West. Bye-bye. Bye. The Solitaire Rose Network has ads. Here they are. That's right, here at the Solitaire Rose Radio Network, we have ads, and our first sponsor is me. That's right, your charming and delightful old Uncle Rap Bastard. I have my first book out with Dangerous Dan Moore. It's the first hundred strips of our online web strip, Worldwide News, the story of the lowest-rated cable news network. And you can get yourself a copy with commentary, with all sorts of extras, with uh, signatures and everything. Just email Dan over at lordshadowflame at gmail.com. Our top sponsor, who's been with us since day one, is DreamHost. DreamHost.com. You need yourself a website, and DreamHost.com is the number one web host in the whole known universe. Just head over to DreamHost.com, put in the code CRAZY, K-R-A-Y-Z, get $20 off your first year. How can you beat that? Our other sponsor is Graze, G-R-A-Z-E.com. Healthy snacks for a healthy lifestyle. Just head over to Gray's, put in the code C-O-R-Y-S-3-R-5-P. Your first and fifth box are free. You can get them weekly. You can get them bi-weekly. You can get them monthly. You just order a whole bunch of them. It's great stuff to keep you away from the vending machine at work. Now, if you would like to leave a comment for any of the podcasts that we do, we'd love those. Go ahead and email us at solitairerosenetwork at gmail.com or you can call 952-856-0519. Operators are standing by. Okay, it's just a place that will record your calls, but we'll play them on the air. We'll answer your questions. We love getting feedback. Tell us what you think. Ask a question. Suggest a topic. Be a guest. Send us your stuff. Solitairerosenetwork at gmail.com. 
If you would like to advertise on any of the Solitaire Rose radio shows, you can. Just email us at solitairerosenetwork at gmail.com, subject advertising. Thanks. I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank you for your patience. And I also want to thank you for telling everyone you've ever met in your entire life to listen to this podcast. Head on over to the Facebook and like the Solitaire Rose Novelcast page, and you'll get updates on what's going on. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks with Part 7 of Do the Job.